Hi, this is Jane Curtin. I wanted to take a moment to thank our generous sponsor, Zabars and Zabars.com. For over 80 years, they've been a New York institution. They carry toasting bagels, smoked salmon, caviar, freshly roasted coffee, and of course, babka. But you haven't tried babka? What are you waiting for? Zabar's ships to all 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. If you go to zabars.com slash shorts, you can find out about exclusive offers and free shipping. You can also get a free story download so you can eat your babka and listen to a great story at the same time. zabars.com slash shorts. Hi, Shorts fans. It's Eric, back with another great offer from our friends at Zabars. Zabars is offering 15% off online orders of $75 or more for the month of July. All you have to do is go to Zabars.com, shop for gourmet food and gifts, and use the coupon code JULY at checkout. And look for free shipping on coffee, bagels, and gift baskets. This offer is for online only, not valid for shipping, gift certificates, or housewares products. That's 15% off at Zabars.com using the code JULY. Happy eating! I practice in front of the mirror how to pronounce Massachusetts, how to look American when I was speaking, how to say the clever things smart girls said in the stories I was reading. I had recently become a reader. I had found what we came looking for in the United States of America between the covers of books. This week on Selected Shorts, what makes an American? I'm Malik Pantoli, and you're listening to Selected Shorts from PRI, the program that brings you great short fiction, read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. We are living in difficult times. We seem to be very divided from one another and uncertain about who gets to be an American. But our stories have always united us while celebrating our differences. Personally, I've had many instances in my own life where I found myself feeling like an outsider or being labeled as different and wanting to be able to connect and belong. And I've learned over time that sharing my own story and hearing the stories of others is a profound way in which we can all come together and share our own humanity. From an evening celebrating the anthology it occurs to me that I am America. Here are three works that reflect on contemporary America through the lens of the past. Elizabeth Strout, author of Olive Kittredge, gives us The Walk, a deceptively simple story that takes an elderly man on a nighttime stroll through his small, main neighborhood. In the course of it, he journeys from present to past and back again. The one and only Ellen Burstyn performs The Walk. Thank you. About his children, something was wrong. This came to Denny Pelletier as he walked alone on the road one night in late December. It was a chilly night, and he was not dressed for it, having only a coat over his T-shirt with his pair of old jeans. He had not intended to walk, but after dinner, he felt the need in him to rise. And then later, 
as his wife readied herself for bed, he said to her, I have to walk. He was 69 years old and in good shape, though there were mornings when he felt very stiff. As he walked, he thought again, something was wrong, and he meant about his children. He had three children. They were all married. They had all married young by the age of 20, just as he and his wife had married young. His wife had been 18. At the time of his children's weddings, the last, his daughter's 17 years ago, Denny did not think about how young they were, even though now, walking, he realized that it had been unusual during that time for kids to marry so young. Now his mind went over the classmates of his children, and he realized many had waited until they were 25 or 28 or even like the really handsome woodcock boy, 32 years old when he married his pretty yellow-haired bride. The cold was distracting, and Denny walked faster in order to warm up. Christmas was two weeks away, and yet no snow had fallen. This struck Denny as strange, as it did many people, because he could remember his childhood in this very town in Maine, and by Christmas time there would be snow so high he and his friends would build forts inside the snowbanks. But tonight, as he walked, the only sound was the quiet crunching of leaves beneath his sneakers. The moon was full. It shone down on the river as he walked past the mills, their windows lined up and dark. One of the mills, the Washburn Mill, Denny had worked in starting when he was 18. It closed 30 years ago. And then he had worked in a clothing store that sold, among other things, rain slickers and rubber boots to the fishermen and to the tourists as well. The mills seemed more vivid to him than the store, the memories of it, though he had worked there not nearly as long as he had the store. But he could remember with surprising clarity the machines that went on all night, the loom room he worked in. His father had worked as a loom mender there at the time, and when Danny began, he had been lucky enough to go from sweeping the floors for three months to becoming a weaver, and then, not long after, a loom mender, as his father had been. The ear-splitting noise of the place, the frightening scoot a shuttle could take if it got out of place, whipping across the cloth and chipping pieces of metal. What a thing it had been. And yet it was no more. He thought of Snuffy, who had never learned to read or write and who had taken his teeth out and washed them in the water trough. And then a sign had been put up, no washing teeth here. <laughs> and the jokes about Snuffy not being able to read the sign. Snuffy had died a few years ago. Many, most of the men he worked with at the mill were now dead. Somehow tonight, Denny felt a quiet astonishment at that fact. And then his mind returned to his children. They were quiet, he thought, too quiet. Were they angry with him? All three had gone to college, and his sons had moved to Massachusetts, his daughter to New Hampshire. 
there seemed to be no jobs for them here. His grandchildren were okay. They all did well in school. It was his children he wondered about as he walked. Last year at Denny's 50th high school reunion, he had shown his eldest boy his yearbook, and his son had said, Dad, they called you Frenchie? Oh, sure, Denny said with a chuckle. It's not funny, his son had said, and had gotten up and walked away, leaving Denny with his yearbook open on the kitchen table. Times changed. But Denny, who had turned to walk along the river, now saw his son's point. To be called Frenchie was no longer acceptable. What Denny's son had not understood was that Denny had never had his feelings hurt by being called Frenchie. As Denny kept walking, digging his hands deeper into his pockets, he began to wonder if this was true. He realized what was true was that he, Denny, had accepted it. To accept it meant to accept much, that Denny would go to work in the mills as soon as he could. It meant that he did not expect himself to go on to school, to pay attention to his studies. Did it mean these things? As Denny approached the river and could see in the moonlight how the river was moving quickly, he felt as though his life had been a piece of bark on that river, just going along, not thinking at all, headed toward the waterfall. The moon was slightly to the right of him, and it seemed to become brighter as he stopped to look at it. Is this why he suddenly thought of Dorothy Prescott? Dory Prescott had been a beautiful girl. Oh, she was a beauty. She had walked the halls of the high school with her long blonde hair over her shoulders. She was tall and wore her height well. Her eyes were large, and she had a tentative smile always on her face. She had shown up at the end of their sophomore year, and she was the reason Denny had stayed in school. He just wanted to see her, just wanted to look at her. Otherwise, he had been planning on quitting school and going to work in the mill. His locker was not far from Dory's, but they shared no classes because Dory, along with her astonishing looks, had brains as well. She was, according to teachers, and even students said this, the smartest student to have come through in a long time. Her father was a doctor. One day she said hi as they were at their lockers, and Denny felt dizzy. Hi there, he said. And after that, they were sort of friends. Dory hung around with a few other kids who were smart, and those were her real friends. But she and Denny had become friends, too. Tell me about yourself, she said one day after school. They were alone in the hallway. Tell me everything, and she laughed. Nothing to tell, Denny said, and he meant it. That's not true. It can't be true. Do you have brothers and sisters? She was almost as tall as he was, and she waited there for him while he fumbled with his books. Yeah, I'm the oldest. I have three sisters and two brothers. Then he finally had his books, and he stood and looked at her. It was like looking at the sun. Oh, wow, Dory said. 
Is that wonderful? It sounds wonderful. I only have one brother, and so the house is quiet. I bet your house isn't quiet. No, said Denny, it's not too quiet. He was already going out with Marie Levescu, and he worried that she would show up. He walked down the hall away from the gym where Marie was practicing. She was a cheerleader, and Dory followed him. So at the other end of the school, near the band room, they talked. He could not now remember all they said that day or the other days when she would suddenly appear and they headed toward the band room and stood outside it and talked. He did remember she never said he should go to college. She must have known, of course, Frenchy. He did not have the grades or the money to go. She would have known because of the classes they were not in together just as he knew she would go on to college. For two and a half years, they did this. Talked maybe once a week. Mostly, they talked during the basketball season when Marie was practicing in the gym. Dory never asked him about Marie, though she'd have seen him in the halls with her. He saw Dory with different guys. Always a different fellow seemed to be following Dory. And she'd laugh with whoever it was and call out, Hi, Denny. He had really loved her. The girl was so beautiful. She was just a thing of beauty. I'm going to Vassar, she said to him the spring of their senior year. And he didn't know what she meant. After a moment, she added, It's a college in upstate New York. That's great, he said. I hope it's a really good college, because you're awfully smart, Dory. It's okay, she said. Yeah, it's a good college. He could never remember the last time they spoke. He did remember that during the graduation ceremony, when her name was called, there had been some cat calls, whistles, things of that sort. He was married within a year, and he never saw Dory again. But he remembered where he was, right outside the main grocery store here in town, when he found out that she had finished Vassar and then killed herself. It was Trish Tucker who told him, a girl they had been in school with. And when Denny said, why? Trish had looked at the ground, and then she said, Denny, you guys were friendly, so I don't know if you knew, but there was sexual abuse in her house. What do you mean? Denny asked. And he asked because his mind was having trouble understanding this. Her father said Trish. And she stood with him for a few moments while he took this in. She looked at him kindly and said, I'm sorry, Denny. He always remembered that, too, Trisha's look of kindness as she told him this. So that was the story of Dory Prescott. Denny headed back to his house. He went up Main Street. Over him came a sudden sense of uneasiness, as though he was not safe. And in fact, the town had changed so much over these last years that People no longer strolled around at night as he was doing. 
But he had not thought of Dory for quite a while. He used to think of her a great deal. Above him, the moon shone down. Its brightness continued as though the memory of Dory or Dory herself had made it so. I bet your house isn't quiet, she had said. And suddenly it came to Denny. His house was quiet now. It had been getting quieter for years. After the kids got married, moved away, then gradually his house became quiet. Marie, who had worked as an ed tech at the local school, had retired a few years ago, and she no longer had as much to say about her days. And then he had retired from the store, and he didn't have much to say either. Denny walked along, passing the benches that were near the bandstand. A few leaves scuttled in front of him in the harsh breeze. Where his mind went, he could not have said, nor how long he had walked. But he suddenly saw ahead of him a heavy man bent over the back of a bench. Almost then he turned around. But the large body was just draped over the back of the bench, such an unusual thing, and appeared not to be moving. Slowly, Denny approached. He cleared his throat loudly. The fellow did not move. Hello, Denny said. The man's jeans were slightly tugged down by the way he was hanging over the bench, and in the moonlight, Denny could see just the beginning of the crack of his ass. The fellow's hands were in front as though pressed down on the seat of the bench. Hello, Denny said, this much more loudly, and still there was no response. He could see the fellow's hair, longish, pale brown, draped across his cheek. Denny reached and touched the man's arm, and the man moaned. Stepping back, Denny brought out his phone and called 911. He told the woman who answered where he was and what he was looking at, and the dispatcher said, we'll have someone right there, sir. Stay on the line with me. He could hear her speaking into another phone, and he could hear static and clicks, and he waited. Okay, sir, do you know if the man is alive? He moaned, said Denny. Okay, sir. And then very shortly, it seemed to Denny, a police car with its blue lights flashing drove right up, and two cops got out of the car. They were calm, Denny noticed, and they spoke to him briefly, and then then went to the man who was draped across the back of the bench. Drugs, said one of the policemen, and the other one said, oh, yeah. One of the policemen reached into his pocket and brought out a syringe. And in a flash, it seemed to Denny, the policeman injected the man in his arm in the crook of his elbow. And very soon the man stood up. He looked around. It was the woodcock boy. Denny would not have recognized him, except that his eyes, deep set on a handsome face, looked at Denny and said, hey, hi. Then his eyes rolled up for a moment, and the policeman had the fellow sit down on the bench. He was not a boy any longer. He was a middle-aged man. And yet Denny could think of him only as a kid in his daughter's class years ago. How had he turned into this person? Large, fat, with his longish hair, and all doped up. Denny stayed where he was 
looking at the back of the fellow's head. And then an ambulance drove up, sirens screaming and lights flashing. And within moments, two EMT men jumped out and spoke to the policeman. One of the policemen saying, yes, he had injected him with naloxone right away. The two EMT men took the Woodcock boy's arm and walked him into the ambulance. The door shut. As the ambulance drove away, one of the policemen said to Denny, well, you saved a life tonight. And the other policeman said, getting into the car, for now. Denny walked home quickly, and he thought, it was not his children at all. This seemed to come to him clearly. His children had been safe in their childhood home, not like poor Dory. His children were not on drugs. It was himself about which something was wrong. He had been saddened by the waning of his life. And yet, it was not over. Hurriedly, he went up the steps to his house, tossing his coat off, and in the bedroom, Marie was awake, reading. Her face brightened when she saw him. She put her book down on the bed and waved her hand at him. Hi there, she said. Hi there. Ellen Burstyn read Elizabeth Strout's story, The Walk. I'm Malik Pancholi. From a solitary stroll, we move to a flood of voices. Susan Minot's provocative, listen, gives us an urgent tide of rumors, prejudices, emotions, and anxieties. Listen's many characters might be mingling at a backyard barbecue, or the story could be the whole country muttering under its breath. Jennifer Ikeda and Chris Lewin whisper to us and listen. We were all so surprised. You were surprised. (laughs) I wasn't surprised. Shocked. It was surprising how unhappy... No one saw. No one could see. No one wanted to see. They saw. Didn't really think about it. So they were right. Of course they were right. They were wrong. Who's they? They were. They are. Seeing what they weren't. Feeling left. Who are they? Wanted what everybody else. Left out. Who's everybody? Reasons for it. Can't ignore the numbers. People want... The numbers say it all. People hoping. What the numbers mean. People always want... What the rich... People always want something. What the poor... People always... Something new. Want something more. People always... Who are people? The uncounted. They can't. The ignored. They won't. They'll try. Just ignore. They're forgotten. They know who they are. They're to blame. Who's the problem? They're corrupt. They're the future. Liars. They're what's happening. They're the heart. They won't. Who are they? Never on our side. They were never. They don't care. They're insane. They used to be great. Why can't they get along? They're clueless. Trying our best. Symbols of hate. Doesn't work anymore. Symbol of hope. Used to be great. 
Not trying. Have to fix. Have no choice. Making it worse. Did our best. Human behavior. Must do better. Having no choices. The rich. Wrong of them. The poor. Can't handle. Leaving. Never leaving. Must do something. Time for a change. Out of complacency. Not mine. Doesn't work anymore. Time to act. Not theirs. Who are they? We'll show them. What they're saying. They are. What they want to say. What they couldn't say. What they're thinking. What are they thinking? They couldn't say. No one was listening. The rich, always. Can't be helped. Human nature. Can't be changed. Must be saved. Weirder every day. Nature unbridled. What I heard. Did something else happen? Can't watch. Can't listen. How can they? Can't dismiss. Can't blame. So surprising. More each day. Less each day. Have to leave. Never leaving. What can we do? I thought we were. What will they do? Isn't fair. We didn't know. Seen it all. What the kids? It's never been. Truly insane. Lost his mind. Never had it. <laughs> He was great. Never in my lifetime. Only the rich. Like it was before. 99%. Keep fighting. Really worried. How do you like your meat done? Can't listen anymore. What are they saying? Can't watch. Can't stop watching. How can people? Can't sleep. What do they want? Please hold. How can people not? More. Stop complaining. Feeling threatened. Upon themselves. Did something else happen? You mean Charlottesville? No, since then. Anyone better? Sorry, I'm late. Somebody must. Who? She couldn't. She could have. She didn't. He did. He heard them. He was great. They hated him. We loved him. They loved him. He heard them. Can't believe this. Nothing like this yet. Can't be happening. Had to happen. They've finally gotten... Can't go on. Can't stand to listen. Can't bear to watch. Has to change. Message is clear. What's the message? Can't bear. They're insane. Must condemn. Has to stop. Blame the rise. Feeling threatened. No one listening. Accept the differences. Deliberate strategy. No strategy. No one listening. He heard them. No one heard. They heard him. Which them? Which him? Across the aisle. This is how I like to cook my meat. Great. Again. Really worried now. Like the world has never seen. Not the way I like it. Lies. Getting what they want. No, thank you. Hell yeah. Must ignore it. All lies. Has to change. Nothing new. Never before. Once again. Feeling threatened. Having a clue. Never will. This is where I work. Not anymore. Threatened. I never did before. Can't stand it. Not anymore. Have to for my family. Still can't believe it. Can't imagine. Can't bear. Can't look. Not another word. Jennifer Ikeda and Chris Lewin asked us to listen. Susan Minot was the writer, and I'm Malik Pancholi. When we return, Julia Alvarez finds her voice, and strong women have their say. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide, from PRI, Public Radio International.
Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Malik Pancholi. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. And you'll also get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for Selected Shorts on iTunes and hit subscribe. Julia Alvarez is best known for her novel, how the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents. In our next selection, the essay, Speak, Speak, she writes about the same subject. She's trying to feel at home in an America that offers both freedom and discrimination. It's performed by Selenese Leia. I had all kinds of Spanish sass to say to the mean girls in my sixth grade class next time they made fun of my accent, my stinky lunch, my loud clothes, my skinny legs. El problema was that I didn't know how to say smart stuff in English. What I did manage to say, the girls mimicked, exaggerating my mispronunciation so I sounded even dumber. Speak, speak. They cried hilariously. The boys roughhoused me, yanking my braids, slamming into me like bumper cars, pulling down my knee socks, lifting the hem of my skirt to see if I had a tail. They, too, taunted me. Spick! Spick! What was this strange word they hurled like a weapon? Bobby wouldn't know. His English was terrible. Mommy was the most fluent. As a girl, she had gone to a boarding school in Massachusetts. (laughs) A name the rest of us couldn't pronounce without our tongues tripping all over those cluttery consonants. Mommy claimed I had misunderstood. The children want you to be their friend. They are asking you to talk to them, speak. Speak! For a tiny segundito, I felt a rush of relief. But then, I recalled those flushed faces, grimacing, and I knew those kids didn't want to hear anything coming out of my mouth. We'd come to the United States from the Dominican Republic, fleeing the dictator Trujillo. My father had been part of an underground movement, and we'd escaped just in time. My parents kept saying we were so lucky to be in the home of the brave, the land of the free, a country where we could be whatever we wanted to be. But on the television, we watched as black people were hosed down, attacked by dogs, hit with batoons, hauled off to prisons, Churches and storefronts were burning. How was this any different from the dictatorship that we had come from? 
My mother scolded me for my lack of gratitude. You don't know how lucky you are. So many people would die to be here. Exactly, and they were on TV right now. <laughs> trying to eat at lunch counters to sit where they wanted to, not just at the back of the bus. Tell that to those black people. Don't think because you're in a new country you can get fresh with me. Well, what about freedom of speech? What about the home of the brave and the land of the free? I always wanted to answer back, and I always did. I answered back out of the reach of the slipper she'd taken off to spank me. It was a slippery slope in our family. What country we're in and what rules applied at any given moment. I practiced in front of the mirror how to pronounce Massachusetts. How to look American when I was speaking. How to say the clever things smart girls said in the stories I was reading. I had recently become a reader. It was my teacher's doing. Sister Mary Zoe could see I loved stories. She put books in my hands. She sent me to the library. A librarian recommended books she was sure that I loved. It turned out there was room for me in the ever-expanding circle of readers. I had found what we came looking for in the United States of America between the covers of books. A whole world where Everyone was welcome. No warning posters on the covers. Not for spics. Not for blacks. Not for girls. What an amazing world this was. What freedom came with reading. I could go back to olden times. I could go to a whole other country. I could go to the future. I could be a prince or a pauper. I could be a slave girl in the South. I could be a young woman who solved mysteries and drove a convertible and had a boyfriend and a widowed father. <laughs> no mommy to tell her what she could and she couldn't do. The more I read, the more I wanted to be a storyteller myself. But deep inside, I really didn't believe I was welcomed. I had never read a book about people like me or books written by people like me. This was the United States of pre-multicultural studies of pre-anything but the melting pot, that old assimilationist mainstreaming model. And so the message to me was that although the underlying truth of everything I was reading was no one is an alien here, still... There were big gaps on that shelf of American literature. But then, in one of our anthologies among absent voices and missing stories, I discovered a poem that meant a great deal to me. I, too, by the African-American poet Langston Hughes. He, too, had encountered prejudice. He had not been invited to the big table of American literature sent instead to eat in the kitchen of minor writers. But Mr. Hughes knew that tomorrow he'd be at that table claiming his place in the chorus of American song, in America that was still not listening to him, treating him like a second-class literary citizen. <sighs> that poem was music to my ears. The fact that it was included in my textbook proved that he had been right, that it was possible. And so, I set out to be a writer. 
And all through high school, college, graduate school, I kept writing. That little poem had given me a lot of gasoline. <laughs> Upon graduation, I was hired by the National Endowment for the Arts to give workshops, writing workshops in schools, prisons, old age homes in Kentucky, North Carolina, California, Maryland. I felt like a migrant poet traveling across America, listening to its varied carols like that most Latino sounding of poets, Walt Whitman. I was already into my 30s, largely unpublished, when I won a residency at Yaru, the prestigious writing retreat. My first big lucky break! Oh, I would be surrounded by writers I admired, as well as by the ghosts of those that had been there before me, including, I found out, Langston Hughes. Driving, into the grounds, 440 wooden acres with stone walls, statues of Greek gods and goddesses overlooking the formal gardens. I wondered if I had the right address. <laughs> My awe was compounded once inside the ornate neo-Gothic mansion with its Tiffany windows and its wide, winding wooden staircase. I felt as if I had entered a cathedral of literature. Talk about location pressure. I was assigned the tower room with a god's eye view of the ground. A frieze above the fireplace betrayed the muses playing lyres and flutes. Like Yeats in his tower, I wanted to write something important, something on the order of turning and turning in the widening gyre, something that might get me invited to the big table where I hoped to meet at last Mr. Hughes and thank him. A week passed, two, I hadn't come up with a damn thing. And those were the days before computers, and I could hear everyone else being productive, their typewriters clacking away. During the workday, we were forbidden to visit each other's studios or talk in public spaces. Our prepared lunches were laid out on a table for us to pick up. At night, we gathered together for dinner, everyone discussing what they were working on. I kept my mouth shut, not only out of deference to all the accomplished writers, but also because I had nothing to report. One morning, at my desk, I heard what was music to my ears. A vacuum cleaner coming up the narrow stairs towards the tower room. Someone to talk to. I leapt to the door, swung it open, and I startled the young woman with my desperately eager, hello. She held a finger to her lips and gestured me to follow her downstairs to the kitchen where the housekeeping staff and the cook were having a coffee break around a big wooden table. I felt like a released prisoner, <laughs> listening to their stories, juicy tidbits about different writers who had residence at Yaru. This one's escapades, that one's drinking problem. As they gossiped, I paged through the cook's thick, falling-apart cookbook with notes scribbled in the margins, favorite recipes bookmarked with greeting cards and old letters. I started jotting down the lovely vocabularies, the names of spices, lists of garnishes, icing, pastries, condiments, how to cook a ham, blanch almonds, make a fluffy souffle. These lists were my madelines taking me back to the world of my childhood. Before I had ever dreamed of becoming a writer, I'd been raised, as were most girls in the Dominican Republic in the 50s, to be a housewife and a mother. 
My first apprenticeship had been in the household arts, in the company of women who put meals on the table, hung up the wash, ironed, swept, dusted, sewed at threadle machines or with needle and thread, women who took care of their familias, which were extended and sizable. As they worked, they told stories, and they gossiped, and they sang songs to lighten the load of their labors. I realized why I had gotten stuck. I had been ignoring their voices inside of me. They did not sound like turning and turning in the widening gyre or singing me muse and tell me, tell me the story. They said things like, don't put too much salt on the salad, you'll wilt the lettuce. You call that a blind stitch? I see it. (laughs) I went upstairs and I began writing what would become the housekeeping poems. The first was a poem composed of the lists I had copied from that Yadu cookbook. Cup, spoon, ladle, pot, kettle, grater and peeler, casserole, colanda, cora, waffle iron, small funnel. The names of our instruments. Knead, poach, stew, whip and stir. Score, julienne, whisk, saute, skiff. Scallop, grind, glacé, candy, garnish. The names of our movements. Dash of salt, twist of lemon, bit of bay leaf, pinch of thyme, sprinkle with breadcrumbs, deep fried dice, let rise. I thought of Langston and how he'd wanted to eat at the big table in the dining room. I was just as happy staying in the kitchen among the women who had first taught me service to an art. Strong, resourceful, big-hearted women who kept the world running smoothly for the rest of us. They were the America I wanted to belong to. There's the voices I wanted to write down. I went back to my tower room, and ignoring the figures on the frieze, I sat at my desk and summoned my muses. Speak. Speak. Selenese Leia read Julia Alvarez's essay, Speak, Speak. I'm Malik Pancholi. Alvarez found her voice by listening to her past. Some of the most formative American voices are those who have been overlooked by history. These include the voices of many African-American women. Their work has been recovered in an anthology edited by historian Henry Louis Gates and Hollis Robbins, the portable 19th century African-American women writers. Gates joined us for a live shorts evening to present readings from the book. Here he is, speaking from the stage at Symphony Space. The remarkable thing about this evening is that these words have never been spoken aloud before. So we're making history tonight. Our anthology was designed to highlight the dynamism of these artists' lives and their thinking, their social and political acuity, their stomach sense of community, their budding but potent feminism. You'll hear a common strength, wit, intelligence, style, and a determination to move ahead in spite of discrimination and racism in all its forms. 
That was scholar Henry Louis Gates speaking from the stage at Symphony Space. The women Gates celebrates in the anthology spoke in public, in private, in prose, and in verse. Here are three examples. Catherine Davis Chapman Tillman was a prolific writer, publishing poems, short fiction, and journalism into the 1920s. Her poems singled out important historical figures who represented black progress, like Ida B. Wells, one of the founders of the NAACP. Crystal Dickinson performs Lines to Ida B. Wells. Thank God there are hearts in England that feel for the Negro's distress and gladly give up their substance to seek for his wrongs a redress. Speed on the day when the lynchers no more shall exist in our land, when even the poorest Negro protected by justice shall stand, when no more the cries of terror shall break on the midnight air, while poor and defenseless Negroes surrender their lives in despair, when the spirit of our inspired Lincoln, Wendell Phillips, and Summer Brave shall enkindle a spirit of justice and our race from oppression save. When loyal hearts of the Southland with those of the North tried and true shall give to the struggling Negro that which is by nature his due. And the cloud that threatens our land shall pale beneath liberty's sun. And in a prosperous future be atoned the wrongs to us done. Go on, thou brave woman leader. Spread our wrongs from shore to shore until clothed with his rights is the Negro. And lynchings are heard of no more. And centuries hence... The children sprung up from the hematic race on history's unwritten pages thy daring deeds shall trace. And the Afro-American mother who of Negro history tells shall speak in words of grateful praise to the noble Ida B. Wells. Crystal Dickinson read Lines to Ida B. Wells by Catherine Davis Chapman Tillman. Next, we hear from one of the most famous figures in African-American history, Sojourner Truth. She was a former slave who became a leader in the abolitionist movement, and her many speeches were reported by the newspapers of the day. Kaneza Shaw reads an excerpt from a speech delivered to the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio. May I say a few words? I want to say a few words about this matter. I am a woman's rights. I have as much muscle as any man and can do as much work as any man. I have plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed. And can any man do more than that? I have heard much 
about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man and can eat as much too, if I can get it. I am as strong as any man that is now. As for intellect, all I can say is, if a woman have a pint and a man a quart, why can't she have her little pint full? You need not be afraid to give us our rights for fear we will take too much, for we can't take more than our pine will hold. The poor men seem to be all in confusion and don't know what to do. Why, children, if you have woman's rights, give it to her and you will feel better. You will have your own rights and they won't be so much trouble. I can't read, but I can hear. I have heard the Bible, and I have learned that Eve caused man to sin. Well, if woman upset the world, do give her a chance to set it right side up again. Kaneza Shaw performed an excerpt of a speech delivered to the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio, by Sojourner Truth. I'm Malik Pancholi. Finally, a bold poem by Mary E. Ash Lee. In Afmerica, Lee imagines looking back on her ancestors from a position of triumph. She shares the news of Black female empowerment after centuries of oppression. Here is Afmerica. Kaneza Shaw is our leader again. America. Hang up the harp, I hear them say, nor sing again an Afrique lay. The time has passed, we would forget, and sadly now do we regret there still remains a single trace of that dark shadow of disgrace which tarnished long a race's fame until she blushed at her own name. And now she stands unbound and free in that full light of liberty. Sing not her past, cries out a host, nor of her future stand and boast. Oblivion be her aimed for goal in which to cleanse her ethnic soul and coming out a creature new on life's arena stand in view. But stand with no identity? All robbed of personality? Perhaps this is the nobler way to teach that wished-for brighter day. Yet shall the good which she has done, be silenced all and never sung? And shall she have no inspirations to elevate her expectations? From singing, I cannot refrain. Please pardon this, my humble strain. With cheeks as soft as roses are, 
and yet as brown as chestnuts dark, and eyes that borrow from a star a tranquil yet a brilliant spark, or face of olive with a glow of carmine on the lip and cheek, the hair in wavelets falling low with jet or hazel eyes that speak, or brow of pure Caucasian hue, with auburn or with flaxen hair, and eyes that beam in liquid blue, a perfect type of Saxon fair. Behold this strange, this well-known maid of every hue, of every shade. We find this maiden everywhere, from wild and sun-kissed Mexico to where the Rocky Mountains rear their snow-peaked heads in Idaho. From east to west, she makes her home. From Carolina's pine-clad state across the plains, she still doth roam to California's golden gate. Yet roaming not as gypsy maid, nor as the savage red man's child, but seeking ere the loving shade of home and civil habits mild, a daughter of futurity. The problem of the age is she. And why should she be strange today? Why called the problem of the age not so when slavery held its sway and she was like a bird in cage. She was a normal creature then and in her true allotted place, giving her life to fellow men, a proud and avaricious race. But now, a child of liberty, of independent womanhood, the world in wonder looks to see if in her there is any good, if this new child, Af-America, can dwell in free Columbia. Af-America, her home is here. She wants or knows no other home. No other lands, nor far nor near, can charm or tempt her thence to roam. Her destiny is marked out here. Her ancestors, like all the rest, came from the eastern hemisphere, but she is native of the west. She'll lend a hand to Africa and in her elevation aid. But here, in brave America, her home, her only home, is made. No one has power to send her hence. This home was planned by providence. Whatever other women do, in any sphere of busy life, we find her, though in numbers few, engaged, heroic in the strife. In song and music, she can soar. She writes, she paints, and sculptures well. The fine arts seem to smile on her. In elocution, she'll excel. In medicine, she has much skill. She is an educator, too. 
she lifts her voice against the still. To Christ she tries man's soul to woo. In love and patience she is seen in her own home, a blessed queen. O ye, her brothers, husbands, friends, be brave, be true, be pure and strong, for on your manly strength depends her firm security from wrong. Oh, let her strong right arm be bold and don that lovely courtesy which marked the chevaliers of old. Buttress her home with love and care. Secure her those amenities which make a woman's life most dear. Give her your warmest sympathies. Thus high her aspirations raise for nobler deeds in coming days. Kaneza Shaw performed Af America by Mary E. Ashley, completing our selection of works featured in the anthology The Portable 19th Century African American Women Writers. I'm Malik Pancholi. Thank you for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Support for Selected Shorts is provided by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the Short Story, the Seedlings Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, and the Axe Houghton Foundation. Additional support is provided by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publishers of the best American short stories, edited in 2017 by Meg Wolitzer. Selected Shorts is also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. The program is also made possible by the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Additional support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space and is distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.